Take your Bibles and turn to 1 John, please, chapter 1. It's been really great to be here to fellowship with Dr. Pettit and some others and to watch you around campus today. It's moving my heart to, uh, to watch you, uh, to remember sitting there, to think about the last 25 or so years of my life since I sat where you're sitting, to consider the grace of God in my life. That's what I long to see for your lives as well. When, as a sophomore here at college, God really got a hold of my heart, It really came down to a crisis of satisfaction, a crisis of how I was going to pursue being satisfied. And I had sought that in some other things that were not necessarily bad things, but it was not God himself. And so God in his grace, and I didn't see it that way, but God in his grace began to take those things away from me. And of course I struggled, (laughs) of course. And it was hard. And there was a semester that I looked on, at least at that stage of my life, my hardest semester, hardest time of my life. I look back now. I didn't know what was coming, (laughs) Um, but in the moment, what it came down to was a crisis of what will I pursue or what what will I look for to really satisfy me? And God in His grace took those things away. And I remember, again, going back to my dorm room one day, on the floor, crying, saying, God... You've taken these things away from me. I said something like this. I believe that you can satisfy me. But I've really never experienced it. But I'm opening my heart to you. And God took what I remember, and it was a long time ago, but what I remember was that my devotions time, which went, it went from a five or ten minute time in the morning primarily so that I wouldn't feel guilty. And it turned into an hour long loving to read the scriptures. And I knew there was a prayer room in, at the bottom in the basement of the dorm. I didn't frequent it before that. And I started to manage my schedule. Back then, we had to, uh, we had, we had prayer group at 10.30, lights out at 11. Can you imagine? And I, I, I started working my schedule so that 9 o'clock, I was done. Homework, projects. And I would spend 9 to 10 at nights, not every night, but as many nights of the week as I could, in that prayer room, just reading the scripture. And after a couple, and and that all turned in like one week. And two weeks in, all those things that God had been, that that God had taken away from me, the the hurt that just went away. And, And something changed. It was a crisis of satisfaction. 
And so when I read the, the text here in a minute, have that in your minds. And then let's see what, what the Apostle John has for us here. 1 John 1, better put the text up so you can see it there. 1 John chapter 1, and we're going to read the opening four verses. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show it unto you, that eternal life, which was with the Father, and was manifested unto us. Verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we declare unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father, and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. Now, one of the most satisfying things about the college experience is that you have the opportunity here to form real friendships. It's also one of the most excruciating aspects of your college experience. Now, why do I say that? Well, you get to know a person, and I'm not even just referring to of the opposite sex. It, it can be... It could just be a close, someone that you want to develop a close friendship with. Another guy, another girl. And you begin to get to know the person. And, you know, you, you come from your high school, even more so maybe if you were homeschooled. And it's like, wow, there's a lot of people I could be friends with. And, and so suddenly one person comes into your life and, and you begin to open yourself up, get to know the person. And your expectations soar. Especially if it's a possible dating relationship. And then as time goes on, you may feel neglected, hurt, maybe even betrayed. Human relationships have the capacity to be deeply satisfying. Yet they can be so problematic and difficult. Friendships can turn out to be so hurtful that we shy away from them. But in doing so, inevitably, we feel empty. We were not made to be alone. Do you remember when your mom, you were little, and your mom would introduce you to somebody, and she would say something like this, I'd like you to meet so-and-so. I'm sure you're going to become great friends. Maybe she still does that, right? (laughs) You know, I think when moms do that, I think they know that they're taking a risk. Now, years later, I think they know that because they understand what friendships are like. But I think they do that because they understand how important relationships are. And they want to push us toward those kind of things. I think the Apostle John, in what we just read, I think he knows that he's taking a risk. What is he doing? He is introducing us to a person. Did did you catch the way he was doing that? It was this phrase after phrase 
of, of saying this about him and this. He, he, really didn't, he doesn't even mention his name till the end of verse 3. But, and even when he does, it's, it's not totally clear that that's who he was talking about the whole time. But what is John doing in his nuanced John way? He is introducing us to a person. Why? Because ultimately, he's inviting us into a relationship. He's inviting us into this deep relationship that he knows if we embrace the relationship, if we pour ourselves into it, and if we respond to all that the relationship, the one who is offering this relationship to us is wanting to pour into us, he knows how deeply, eternally satisfying it will be. But I think he knows he's taking a risk. We may end up rejecting the relationship. But he is conscious bound to introduce us to this man. And the way in which he does that, if you open your heart to see it, you will find him to be the one for whom your heart is always longed. Three things tonight. I'll give you the structure again. Guide our thoughts, Christ the Logos, Christ our life, and Christ our fellowship. This is the way the apostle chose to introduce Jesus to us. Look at verse 1. I'll read slowly. I want you to think on the phrases very briefly. That which was from the beginning, and don't be fooled by the word that. He's talking about a person. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled, the last phrase, the word of life. Now, the Greek word behind the word word is the word logos. In both of John's major writings in the New Testament, um, the Gospel of John and this first epistle, John introduces Jesus to us, in both cases, in the beginning, as the Logos. He's the only New Testament writer to do that. In other words, Paul doesn't do that. Peter doesn't do that. None of the others do that. It's only John. So, the logical question. Why does he do that? Why does he open both of his major writings in the New Testament in basically the same way, introducing us to the Logos, the Word? Before I answer that, I want you to get a sense of the weight of the question. And here's the way I'm going to do it. Think of it this way. John could have chosen any number of words to introduce Jesus. He could have referred to Jesus as the Savior. He could have said the hope or the perfect one, or the Redeemer, or simply the Lord. And we could go on and on. There were any number of options available to him that would have been theologically correct, would have been deep, he could have expounded, and he didn't choose any of those. And twice, clearly on purpose, clearly thought through, probably after 50 or 60 years of meditation on all that Jesus is and does, when he finally sits down to write, he says, he is the Word, the Logos. 
Decades had passed since Jesus had walked on the earth. He's thinking, contemplating. He probably had examined the Old Testament scriptures that pointed to him. So why did he choose the word logos? So to answer that, we need to reach back into two different contexts to understand that. First of all, there was the Old Testament context. And what are we talking about? I can be brief here. In the Old Testament, we find that God wants, when God wants to do something, when He wants to accomplish one of His purposes, He often does so by the power of His Word. Let me just give you three quick examples. One, creation. When God chose to create out of nothing, what does Genesis 1 tell us? What did He do? He spoke. It was with His Word that He spoke them into existence. He created matter by the power of His Word. Another example, self-revelation. When God wanted to reveal Himself to mankind, what did He do? He spoke to the prophets. So Paul makes an argument in Romans chapter 1 that the creation itself, in a sense, speaks to us of God's power, of His divinity. But when God wanted to reveal the more intimate details of who He is and how He thinks and what He loves and what He hates. He actually spoke to us with words, usually via the prophets. His purpose is for humanity. It was, it was through His, his Word, but there's, there's one more. Even when it comes to the issue of salvation or deliverance, it's often that, that we see that it's His Word that God uses to accomplish that purpose. So, for example, in Psalm 107, it says, He sent His Word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. In other words, God's even God's saving and healing power is, 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 is directed through His Word. So, as John is writing, and he's choosing a word to describe Jesus, he says, Jesus is the Word, the Logos. And behind that is this context of that God accomplishes His purpose, His purposes through His Word. He creates through His Word. He even saves through His Word. And what John is saying to us is, this is Jesus. This is God's, this, it is through Him, Jesus, that God created. That's one of His arguments in 1 John 1 and in the Gospel of John 1. It is, it is through Jesus that God the Father, who is Spirit, is revealed to us. It is even through Jesus that our salvation comes. There's that Old Testament context filling out what John means by the choice of Jesus is the Logos. But there's one more context that is very interesting. Which is that Jesus, John was writing in a specific language, Greek, in a context of Greek philosophy and Greek cultural influence. For many generations before John came on the scene, it was the Greek philosophers who had written often about the term Logos... The Greeks understood the term as a universal principle of order or harmony. Let me explain. From ancient times, the philosophers, specifically Greek philosophers, struggled to explain the relationship 
between the diversity and the unity in the world. You say, what are you talking about? Well, you are a student at Bob Jones University. The whole concept of university is that in learning, you seek to understand what holds together, that's the unity part, all the diversity in the reality of the world. So the Greek philosophers looked around and they saw, first of all, diversity. No two humans alike. No two snowflakes alike. A seemingly unending variety of plants and animals, which in the Amazon jungles of Brazil and Peru, they're still discovering animal and plant varieties. Probably more plant varieties than animals, but the wind blows where it wills. It was all this diversity of experience, and the, the Greek philosophers looked around and they said, there's all this diversity, but then they saw this unity. They observed that things held together. They observed that mathematics could make logical sense of nature. And so as, as they, they sought to understand what is this, how do we explain this, they developed this concept that there must be a logos. There must be a principle that provides order and harmony to all the diversity. And the word they gave to it was logos. Now, they didn't, they, they, they weren't sure exactly what they meant by logos. For them, it was a, a principle. From one philosopher to the next, it, it had different, different takes, um, a concept, almost like a cosmic energy. I guess if they'd been able to watch Star Wars, they might have called it the Force. But the Apostle John comes along, and what does he do? And it's amazing. He takes all that context, the search for what explains our existence, what provides the order to all the diversity of our experience. What is it that brings it all together? The Greek said, a philosophy, an idea, a principle. And John says, it's a person. It's a person. It's the Son of God. It is the one who came and died in our place. He is the explanation for all that exists. It's an astounding claim. It's John taking all the Old Testament concept of the Word and saying it's Jesus and all the Greek philosophy and saying what you're looking for is not a philosophy, it's a person. You will never make complete sense of your life outside of the true knowledge of the God-man Jesus Christ. That in essence is what John is saying to you. You try to make sense of your life through... A career, friendships, a relationship, a sport, pleasure. And John is saying to you what you're actually seeking, though you may not even understand it, is a relationship with this man, the Logos, 
Jesus Christ. Consider how much anxiety you deal with because of the struggles you have with relationships. Your desire to be accepted, loved, valued by others. Have you not considered that God intends those struggles? He designs those struggles to come up empty. Your desire for relationship to come up empty in some way so that you are driven to seek it in Him. Don't you see that? That's why John is pointing us to Him. He who is the radiance of the glory of God, the express image of His person, the reason behind your very existence. Christ, the Logos, but John has more for us. Next, Christ, our life. Right at the end of verse 1, you can see that John refers to Jesus as the Logos or the Word of Life. In verse 2, he expounds on that idea that Jesus is the life. And verse 2 culminates, look at it there, it culminates in a reference to Jesus as the eternal life. For the life, verse 2, was manifested and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. On the one hand, the fact that John describes Jesus as the eternal life is John's way of saying that Jesus has always existed, that He is eternal. That's one aspect of what John is saying. He was with the Father, eternal in that sense. As John put it in the opening lines of his gospel, um, He was from the beginning. However, John is saying much more than that. The Apostle John is taking the logic of Jesus as the Logos to its proper conclusion, which is, if Jesus is the Logos, then by definition, He is the only source of true life. Now, why the term, why the term eternal? Like I said, on one hand, to describe that He's always existed. But that word eternal should be understood in a little bit different sense as well. It should be understood as an adjective that is describing the quality of the life. In other words, what kind of life? A a type of life that has an an eternal quality to it. It's not anything temporal. It's not anything shallow. It has a depth to it that can be described with the word eternal. It's the quality of that life that John is pushing at here. Jesus Christ, the Logos, is the one in whom all true life abounds. He is the source of all that is good and beautiful in this world and in your life. He is the reason behind all that exists. He is your life. I want to help you understand John's logic here. As soon as he states that Jesus is the word of life, he immediately turns to describe his humanness. Do you pick up on that? Let's let's, let's go one through one, two, one, two, three, verse one, two, three, and let's let's see it. That which that which was from the beginning. Now look at the humanness of this, which we have heard, 
which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. Look at verse 2. For the life was manifested. What is John talking about? Human physical manifestation. The, the word of life was manifested physically, visibly to us. We have seen it. And bear witness, John is saying, and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. Look at verse 3. Again, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you. Now, why does it matter that Jesus took on human form? And I'm sure there are multiple answers to that. But let me hone in on one. It matters because if Jesus is the Logos, in other words, if He is the purpose for all things, if all things find their purpose in Him, including us, if He is by nature life and and life of a quality that is eternal, and the only way that we can find real life is in a connection to Him, our life. If all that is true about Him, but as the Logos, He was not a person, but just an idea, a principle, then we could go on debating it. If it's a principle, you can debate it. And that's exactly what we would do. We would go on forever debating it. If it's an idea, we debate it. And we would never come to rock-solid truth. And John will not let us go there. Because the Logos of life is not a principle. It is not a concept. It is a person. And because that person took on human form, he could be observed. He could be heard. And so John, among the other eleven, for three years or more, watched him, listened to him. He did what you do with your roommate when you first meet him or her, And you're trying to figure out how the year is going to go. So you listen. And you look for cues. You want to find out, is she honest? Is she going to steal from me? Is she going to be truthful with me? Is he nice? Is he he sincere? Does he act with me like he does outside of the room? Do I like him? Do I want to be with this person? (laughs) Are we pretty much just going to sleep in the same room and in general avoid each other? And John, I'm sure, was doing something similar to that. And after three years, maybe 60 years of contemplation, he comes to the conclusion that that man who they walked with and heard and observed without any question is deity. He is the source of all life. You see, because the Logos is a person 
who could be observed. You can't go on debating it forever. When he died on that cross, the disciples ultimately came to the conclusion he died in our place. He died so that we could have life. And you either deal with that reality or you will face the reality one day that it is true and you didn't believe it. But it is true whether you believe it or not. He is the source of all life. So for years, John considered the significance of this man, contemplated the meaning of his life, his death, his resurrection, his purposes. And so he begins this letter making the simple but profound argument that Jesus is the meaning behind all that exists. He is life itself. Do you realize that all the good things that your heart desires, the desire to be loved, the desire to be at peace, the desire to feel at home, the desire to hear, well done, all those things that make life what God originally intended it to be, all of that is found in the one who is from the beginning, who is life itself. Oh, grasp in your heart that reality and begin to pour yourself into seeking a deep relationship with the one who is life itself. Christ the Logos, Christ our life, and finally Christ our fellowship. Look closely at verse 3, please. That which, was, that which we have seen and heard, we declare unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. I grew up in a church um, where a lot of stuff happened in the fellowship hall. I don't know if your church had a fellowship hall, but in the fellowship hall of our church, uh, there was choir practice, there were wedding receptions, there was children's church, and a whole lot more. And as a kid, my concept of fellowship was the fellowship hall. And so I figured fellowship was just... Anybody getting together, hanging out in some kind of a church-related activity. Now, that's no critique on, on churches or the uses of Fellowship Hall. I just, in my childlike way, that was my concept. What John has in mind by the term fellowship is something, of course, much deeper. It is the sharing of an intimate relationship that, by the way, is not necessarily a marriage it's not just a friendship, nor is it just that you have something in common with the person. However, spiritual fellowship is like all of those things I just mentioned. It has elements of all of those human relationships. So real spiritual fellowship in some way is like a marriage. It has aspects of what marriage is intended to be. It is like a friendship. Aspects of, of what friendship was intended to be. And it is a closeness of spirit that has at its source something powerfully attractive and freeing. 
The Apostle John, who walked and talked with Jesus, is presenting him to us, declaring him he is the word of life so that, catch the so that, it's the purpose statement, so that we can have genuine fellowship and look at it with others, with the Father, and with Jesus Christ himself. John is saying this, the incarnate word of God, which we observed with our own eyes, we are proclaiming to you for one specific reason, so that our fellowship with each other, with the Father and the Son, can be genuine and real. There was a German pastor in World War II named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And during the time when they were being persecuted by the Nazis, his little seminary of pastoral students, he took them to a remote area in Germany, the home of a wealthy lady, and they, for about two years, did seminary there until the Gestapo came and and forced them out and, and they had to abandon them. Ultimately, Bonhoeffer died at the hands of the Nazis three weeks before it was liberated. But in that time, he wrote a little book called Life Together. In that book, out of the intense nature of that context, he wrote about what real Christian fellowship is about. One of the connections he makes is that our fellowship with other Christians cannot, in his terms, be direct. It must be indirect. So what is he talking about? And his point is that in a friendship, say, between me and another Christian, if the relationship is direct and there's nothing in between, then when that person pleases me, I respond positively. And when they fail me, I respond negatively. But if the relationship is indirect in this sense, if between us stands Jesus Christ, and the entire relationship has always between us Christ, then what happens? When my friend fails me, I look at them, I look at him or her through Jesus Christ. And I understand because that person, my friend, my wife, husband, whatever the relationship, it, it, between us is Christ. And so when they fail me, I forgive them because I understand them through Jesus Christ. And I understand that I've been forgiven by Christ. And so I can forgive them. And when they please me, I don't, I don't cling to that or that person so much because I know that Jesus is the source of my life for me. And so my friendships are indirect. It is Christ between us. And that, in essence, is what John is arguing here. And it is, I, he's saying, I'm proclaiming Jesus to you so that... Your relationship with the Father, with the Son, and with other Christians can take place, can be real. 
You've probably been hurt by friendships, maybe even here at this place. And if you don't maintain those friendships with Christ between you and the other person, you will get hurt. And you're going to keep getting hurt. What you need to find is what John is proclaiming to us. Jesus, so that your fellowship, first with God, the Son, and even with others, is done in the way that God has always intended it to be. That deep fellowship, that spiritual friendship, Like Anne of Green Gables put it, the bosom friendship you've always longed for. Jesus Christ, it is possible first with him and through him with others. So in a friendship, there's always something in common. It's a hobby, similar backgrounds, you enjoy doing the same things, you enjoy talking about the same things, could be anything, they're good and fine. I have friends where sports is the primary thing that we have in common. But you need to understand that all of those things that form, in which we form friendships around, they are like a shadow. Oh, they're valuable. I'm not devaluing them. But they are not intended to be ultimate. Because a relationship built around something else, it just just doesn't contain within itself the possibility of deep satisfaction. There's only one thing that can tie my heart to another person in a way that is truly satisfying and fulfilling. And that is to share in the life of the Son of God. Christ the Logos, Christ our fellowship, Christ our life, and Christ our fellowship. Then look at verse 4. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. How will you know, student, that the life of Christ is taking root in your life. And it will be when you find that joy springs up in your heart in ways and at times that never happened before. When that begins to happen, you will know that you're beginning to understand and live in the reality of Christ, your life, and Christ, your fellowship. Let me finish with a final question. Why should you believe this? Why should you believe this? When you've tried friendships, right, that have messed up, you've probably tried a friendship with Jesus Christ in some way and at some time that, that you struggled. It's like... I'm seeking God, but then why am I struggling so much? And why doesn't He seem real to me? So why should you believe this? You say, Tim, is you sound heretical. 
Why should we believe this? And the answer is this. It is because nobody else was willing to die so that you could have this. Do you see that? He's offering this to you. And you say, why should I trust the offer? And it is because behind the offer stands the cross. And the cross is a testimony that you can trust Him. That He really means what He says here. I mean, in one sense, you should trust John. Because John had three years with him and 60 years to think about it and experience the reality without Jesus being physically present. And John is saying that. In one sense, you should trust John. But it goes much deeper than that. And you can trust Jesus because on the cross, He died in your place. No one else has done that for you. He's the only one who rose from the dead. Why should you trust that Christ can be your life and that He can satisfy you and give you that eternal quality of life that your soul has always longed for? A joy that maybe you've never experienced and never understood and at different times it's almost like you've tasted it or you've touched it, but it's just been fleeting. And why should you trust that it can actually be yours in an ongoing way? It is because He rose from the dead to new life. And if God gave him new life, it is exactly what he wants to do for you. If you have never discovered Jesus in this way, if you've never seen the cross in this way, run to him. As we said, look like last night, repent and come to him. And find in Him salvation from your sins. And so much that flows out of that reality. Ultimately, find Him to be the Logos. The source of your entire existence. Your life. Eternal salvation. Genuine life. Fellowship with Him. Fellowship with the Father. Real fellowship relationship with others. Trust that He will satisfy you in that way. Father, use the Word in any way that you want to use it tonight in the lives of these young people. And may in their hearts, may they run to you and find in Christ life that their hearts have always longed for. In Jesus' name, amen.